the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Arms are in the air for Joe Lowry. Joining me today to talk some MLS is a man who knows that when you're about to spend an insane amount of money to bring in a player, all you need is transfer mark to make it happen. <laughs> Joe Lowry, how you doing, pal? That's exactly right, Taylor. That's actually my morning routine. So I know uh-huh. a lot of people wake up, they go out, go for a walk, maybe have some coffee, whatever. I just scroll transfer market and look at Italian players that are out of contract for the yep. following summer. I, I kind of thought other people did that, too. I know there's at least one other person there's that does that in the world. There's at least, <laughs> there are literally dozens of us, Taylor. There are dozens of us. Um, yeah, no, it's good to be here and transfer market for life. Transfermark for Life. Uh, yes, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about that Toronto FC article written by Paul Tenorio and Tom Bogert uh, for The Athletic that goes inside Toronto FC's fractured culture. We're going to praise Nashville and Philadelphia. We're going to answer some listener questions. When I say we, I mostly mean Joe, because Joe is going to be doing a lot of the answering. David Goss is not with us because the slackers at Extra Time took off yesterday. Federal holiday and whatnot. Uh, So they're recording their episodes today. I know, (laughs) right? Come on. Work-life balance? Who needs that? Who needs that? We've got Toronto to discuss. Joe, for people who have not been paying as much attention to Toronto, how bad has this season been? Because I think we had some concerns about them early on, and we have had some concerns about them in the middle of the start of the season, and now we continue to have concerns about them. It's basically been a concerning season. It's it's been a concern sandwich, you know, like a compliment yep. sandwich where it's you know you say something nice and then you mean and then nice at the end. For Toronto, it's just been like concern, concern, concern. Like the bread is concerned, the meat is concerned, the other bread is concerned. It's a lot of concern. Um, the bread it, had like a little bit of mold that you could like right. kind of cut out, right. but you feel yeah. like if there was mold on it, maybe there's mold elsewhere. But it's a little right. concerning. It's not right. terrible, but it's not not terrible. And then the other piece of bread is just straight up mold. Like it's yeah, just well, entirely mold. Yeah, it's not even bread anymore. It's literally just mold. So Toronto, and I, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, right at the end of the show. And, and I know some folks didn't make it all the way through that or, or maybe, you know, only tune in for Tuesday shows if you're a big MLS fan. You know, the, to set the scene for Toronto, last season, midway through the year, they bring in two superstars, players that should be super, superstars in MLS. Insigne, that deal had been agreed to beforehand. They also signed for, uh, Federico Bernadeschi. Two Italian national team players, granted Insigne is a much larger figure, and even though his statue, his stature is much smaller, he's he's like this big force, right? So they have the Italian stars come in, and the hope is that that's going to save their season last year. It doesn't. They played some amazing soccer. Like the first time we really saw these players on the field together against Charlotte, the first half of that game last year was maybe the best I've ever seen an MLS team play in my time watching this league. They did some amazing things, but they weren't consistent enough. So they come into this season, the thought is you get a full preseason you are able to retool your squad. And a lot of folks, myself included, liked a lot of the moves that Toronto made over the offseason. They brought in Sean Johnson and goal. Okay, nice, reliable goalkeeper coming from NYCFC. That makes sense. They bring in Matt Hedges in the middle of their back line. Longtime starter with FC Dallas. Great player of the ball out of the back. Can do a lot of the things that Bob Bradley wants his team to do. They strengthen in a number of other areas. They finally trade for another central midfielder and Brandon Cervenia from FC Dallas, and that was, a, I thought, a good move, and I think still is a, a good move, relatively speaking. They make some moves for fullbacks, and they're, they're doing a lot of stuff with the squad, and the thought is, okay, this is the time. Like, Insigne Bernadeschi, they had the preseason, they're going to be able to turn it on. This team with them leading, and then some of the other new pieces kind of bringing the core of this group together. On paper, they were looking very, very strong, and then you get into the actual season, and so rarely have we seen that. And eventually, we're starting to see more and more signs of not just like problems on the field and, and reasons why they aren't getting results and maybe some issues with the squad build, which we can talk more about later. But we also see infighting in the team. And that's where this this piece from The Athletic really comes into play. So the recent timeline, Insigne last weekend, so not the game against DC, but the, the weekend before that for Toronto, was injured, quote unquote. And, and the thought was that you know maybe he wasn't. And reports came out about that, that he actually wasn't hurt and basically was just kind of feuding with Bob Bradley. That was the reporting at the time. Then after that game last weekend, Bernadeschi hits out at Bob Bradley's tactics and says, you know, we don't really know what we're doing. It's not clear what the options are in the attack, things like that. Reports come out that he's not happy in Toronto and doesn't like Bob Bradley. And then on Friday, Bradley announces that Bernadeschi is not in the squad against DC United because of a coach's decision. And then later in the day on Friday is when the Athletic drops their piece on really a lot more of the inside issues with Toronto, saying that, Insigne and Bernadeschi don't like each other. Insigne doesn't like Bob Bradley and wasn't going to come back this season, or at least said he wasn't. Bob Bradley and Bernadeschi getting into a kind of a heated argument. There's a lot in this piece, and, and I know we'll go through it in a bit more detail. 
But that's kind of setting the stage. The results haven't been there. The performances haven't been there. And it, it doesn't appear that any positive culture is forming behind the scenes either. And I think that, to me, is the confusing but also confounding but also fascinating part of the piece and of Toronto FC as a whole is that there seem to be so many different issues. For people who haven't read uh, the, the piece, again, very excellent, uh, very well reported, very well researched, talked to a lot of people, some on the record, some very much off the record or uh, as like background or anonymous. Regardless, it, it's and this is not a shot at the article, but it's that they they kind of jump around to so many different little issues that relate to Bob Bradley, that relate to the star players, that relate to Michael Bradley and Mark Anthony Kay about squad dissatisfaction, about training methods. It feels like there aren't really any clear positives for Toronto right now. And it also feels like there are many, many negatives, but not one key central negative. Would mm. you agree with that? Or do you feel like just the clash between Bernardeschi and Bradley is the the chief concern right now if you're a Toronto fan? I think there is one larger chief concern that doesn't have to do with anyone that we've mentioned so far outside of alluding to him in the intro, and that's Bill and, Manning. But yeah, at, that's outside of that, and we can talk about Manning in a minute. Let's but, I mean, do it. <laughs> there are so many, Taylor, you're right. There are so many of these small little scenes that get played out in the piece. It's Insigne and Bernadeschi not liking each other and Bernadeschi being mad that he doesn't make as much money as Insigne and asking for a new contract and Toronto telling him that's not going to happen. You already make a ton of money. And in him wanting to go to MLS Media Day because he's jealous of the attention that Insigne is getting, which is hilarious, uh, by the way. Like, there's so many of these little stories. It's Insigne not liking Bob Bradley and saying that he's going to leave. It's Bob Bradley and Bernadeschi getting heated about things, and we kind of mentioned that. I mean, there's so many of these little pieces. But yeah, for me, it's the Bill Manning one that kind of trumps them all. Then let's do this. Let's stick with Bill Manning for a second, or maybe a longer second, and then we'll get back to the individual players and Bob Bradley and the like. Because Bill Manning does seem to be a huge part of this story. The athletic piece talks to him, I think, multiple times because they bring up some of the concerns that were anonymously reported to him, and he responds. But, Joe, let's let's give a little bit of background on Bill Manning for a moment. So he comes in after basically Toronto FC have their, their most productive period in their history when they are in their most dominant form, going to multiple MLS Cups, winning, winning some along the way, winning one along the way. How many did they win, Joe? Uh, honestly, don't remember. They won, I think, 2017 and yeah. then runner-up in multiple others around yeah. that. You and I saw them be runners-up, I do believe, hey, that's uh, right. in, in person in Seattle. Uh, but in comes Bill Manning, and it feels like a return to the Toronto FC of days gone by when things were not quite as rosy at the club. Well, and, and the thing with Manning is he wasn't brought in after that stuff. Like, he was involved with those trophies. Like, he was there in 2015 ahead of some of these other different successful seasons for Toronto. The thing that happened with Toronto that I think has partially derailed the club's trajectory is the fact that they've lost so many other key figures from around the club. It's mm-hmm. Tim Bezbachenko who's gone to Columbus. You know, he was, and he's mentioned in the piece, he was at least partially responsible for that, that 2017 treble-winning team for Toronto. He's gone. You start to lose your director of scouting. You start to lose other folks that are now in key roles at other clubs around Major League Soccer. And all of a sudden, you're five, six, seven, eight years down the the line after Bill Manning's been involved and there are other key pieces that have left. And a lot of the responsibility that was spread around to other fairly capable folks is now on Bill Manning. Or at least that's how Bill Manning seems to see it. And and these are some quotes from the piece that I think are helpful here to to give people more context One quote from the piece, multiple former Toronto FC employees said Manning does not seek others' opinions when making decisions and that he considers himself the best scout, negotiator, and talent evaluator in the club. Taylor, that one, that one got Mm. me real good. Like that one really, really got me. You can see this, right? You can see when the guy's pulling up transfer market to go and find individual players that he thinks are going to help the team, like as president... You know, a lot of decisions are going to come across your desk. You're going to have choices to make. You should be making some decisions. I don't think you should be doing all of those things. Like, you shouldn't be the chief scout for Toronto FC. You shouldn't be the chief talent evaluator for the club. Like, that's not your job. Yeah, it might be your job to okay signings. It might be your job to, to go out there and, and use your weight to make some of these things happen. But, man, if you're the one that's building this club, and Bob Bradley shouldn't get off scot-free here either because he's making decisions and he's signing players as well. But, like, with the amount of influence that Bill Manning has and how, poor, how poorly things have gone, it, it does not yeah. look good for him, Taylor. 
No, and this is one where it's, it seems like Manning was given an opportunity to respond to some of those uh, characterizations uh, because he pushed back on that one. He said, my involvement has been the same across all my jobs because as team president, everything eventually comes across my desk. And sometimes you want to provide support and you want to provide resources and everything else. And then sometimes you have to ask questions and sometimes you have to provide direction. And then you do rely on your staff and your talent to be aligned and make sure you're going in that same direction. That's the end of that quote. But that does immediately conflict with the point you made uh, yeah. that he made about yeah. basically watching Italy in the Euros and then winning the Euros and being very good and then seeing how Toronto's Italian population responded to that team and then basically going to transfer market, looking up who was going to be out of contract and identifying Insigne. And I think I'm sure there are times that he delegates uh, Bill Manning. I'm sure there are times that he listens to other people and gives and empowers other people. But right there... It sounds to me like he identified a player and then went and said, okay, this is who we're going after. Let's make that happen. And telling that there wasn't much about like, oh, yeah, I watched him on Y Scout or I watched him on something or I saw what he brings to the team yeah. and I saw how he fits a role or I talked to the coach about how he could fit in. It just feels like there was sort of very rudimentary thinking there that led to we'll sign a big player. He'll have a big splash. It worked for Giovinco, so it'll work yep. for Insigne. And yep. now here we are. Well, and the weird thing is, I guess it's not weird, but... I'll be honest, I don't have any issue with the fact that they signed Insigne. I don't really have an issue with the fact that they signed Bernadeschi either. I like that they're being ambitious and trying to go out there and sign these players. It's not necessarily the result that is the problem here for Toronto. It's the process, right? I know it sounds kind of cliche and businessy, but like the, the process of going out and signing these players in this way is, is not good, and it's not going to lead to sustainable success, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to go out there and, and make your squad this top-heavy year after year after year and be able to, to win consistently and be able to transition from one era of your club to the next. We've already seen Toronto struggle to do that off the field. We've seen them struggle to do that now on the field, going from you know the little interim Chris Armas era. Like I mean, so many different challenges here, not even interim for Chris Armas. He was just the coach, which never really made sense. Like There's so many of these issues with how mm-hmm. they're going around and, and thinking about things. And I, that, that quote from Manning that you read, Taylor, Basically, it's him refuting in some ways, it seems like, what these other sources are saying, right? About him yep. thinking that he's the best scout, negotiator, and talent evaluator. Later in the, in the thing that you read, it talks about him saying, like, no, I, I rely on people further down the line. So it seems like he's kind of hitting back at that idea. But man, like, if you're, if you're Bill Manning, and he's right, ultimately, a lot of things do come across his desk. Just wait for them to come across your desk. Like, just, just wait for it. Don't go out there and, and feel like you have to be the one doing all of these things. Yeah. You don't. And, and at this point, it doesn't look like he's very good or extremely capable at making a lot of these things happen again like there's a lot of blame to go around there's not really any winners here either but for me reading through this story there's one thing that sticks out that maybe we didn't have as much information on before or we could sort of suppose at but but weren't totally sure it's bill manning looking pretty bad at his job joe you know that i'm a fan of of like mild conspiracies. I'm not going full conspiracy, but I love little little conspiracies, little theories. And there was one on Reddit the other day that was like, "What is a a theory about the Premier League that you believe?" Hmm. And it and the top, the most upvoted one was basically that uh, there's two clubs, but Brighton was one of them. That it's basically from everything I have heard and read from other executives. Like what Brighton does that makes them this exceptional club isn't that exceptional. They're just competent. They just make yeah. competent decisions yeah. at a time when so many other clubs make wildly ambitious if you want to be generous decisions and I think that I bring that up to talk about Bill Manning a little bit more because fine you think Insigne is going to be the difference maker he could be the attacker you need obviously he has the pedigree and the reputation bring him in Bernardeschi Uh, obviously because of the Total Soccer Show scouting network that's where I'm assuming he first heard about him but then playing for Juve having success but then there's also the the point he makes in there about like, and we went after Ronaldo and we tried to make that work. And right there, it's just like, okay, there is maybe more of a scattershot approach here. And you've got to make yeah. a splash that would have probably turned some heads. But that never feels like a signing that, that's, that is that likely. And it also doesn't feel like a signing that fits with what Toronto FC needed. And so you start to see this sort of scattershot approach. And, and I, I think what confuses me with Toronto more than anything else is this idea that, like as you said in the beginning – some of their roster build was smart. They did make some smart decisions, but then maybe in hindsight, we look at it and a point in the piece, 14 players over the age of 28, 10 players under the age of 23, using a lot of Academy players uh, and MLS Next Pro players like on short-term basis to fill in the holes. And, and it's not a comprehensive squad build. Toronto FC very much struggling from some of their past expenditure. And so 
it's it's one of those confusing situations in which you have uh, people making decisions that I think are justifiable in the moment, but then in retrospect, when you look at all of them combined, it feels more like a mess than a series of calculated business decisions that make the, p- the team better on the pitch. Yeah, there's not really a common thread across the signings. It's not yeah. like... Thank you for succinctly get, putting it, No, Joe. I mean, you said it well, though. I think you said it really well. Like, you can go out and get these big players, and, and you can even make some smart moves in MLS, but the depth isn't there, the quality isn't there. And, and honestly, I'm not sure how much of of the depth thing matters when you have Insigne and Bernadeschi playing like Insigne and Bernadeschi of years gone by. The challenge is that Toronto kind of put all their eggs in that basket, and now when that basket gets angry at, at the other basket I, I don't like this analogy that i've gone on i mean when, when when things when there's one crack everything starts to fall apart because you've built your team around two players that very clearly have large egos and, and to some extent that's yeah. warranted because of what they've accomplished relative to what every other person in that team has accomplished you've got a manager with a big ego and bob bradley who's done a lot of things and has ruffled a lot of feathers over the years as well you clearly have a president with a big ego and bill manning that believes that he's capable of doing a lot of these things and, and maybe likes to occupy a few more lanes as he's driving down the road than he probably should. Like, you have all these figures. And, and yeah, there's some supporting pieces. And, yeah, Sean Johnson seems like a great locker room guy. And, and Matt Hedges may be the same. I don't know these people personally. But, you know, they seem to have a pretty good rep around Major League Soccer and have been around for a long time, even in the national team picture. Like, you have players that are probably capable of bringing most normal squads together. But Toronto aren't a normal squad. Like, they, they bet on the pieces that they went out and took a big swing at to hit. Mm-hmm. And, and realistically... They just haven't hit. And whether that's because they're they're not good enough at this point in their career and they can't actually sustain the number of minutes that they would need to play for Toronto to be competitive, you know, that's that's possible. Or whether it's them just not liking each other and deciding, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Like I, I don't I don't want to be here. I don't like this. I'm not gonna try very hard. Either way, like those both spell disaster for Toronto. And so far, there's time for that to change, but so far that's what we've seen play out on the field. One more thing relating to Bill Manning, though. Uh Another very interesting thing that kind of kept coming back up and being refuted, but coming back up was the idea that uh, Insigne and Bernardeschi, by some accounts, just did not like each other or did not have much of a relationship at all. And it does sound to me like reading between the lines that basically Insigne was told, like, you know, be involved in the recruiting, like, give him a call, tell him that it's great to be here, tell him why you're coming or whatever. And then I think that somehow morphed into like, oh, no, Insigne really wanted him here. He was an active part of getting Bernardeschi here which I think has now devolved to, well, they're not like friends, but they do have a relationship. And and some of the thinking does seem to have been, well, they're both Italian, so they'll get along. And like, never mind, even even little things, like one coming from Juve, one coming from Napoli. There's going to be just a difference right there, like uh, at club level from uh, the North-South divide. I don't know how much that permeates their, their way of thinking. But I do know that to assume that two people are going to be best buddies because they come from the same country and speak the same language... I think is is maybe being optimistic at best versus having some more detailed scouting and some more detailed conversations. It doesn't seem like that put Toronto in the best position to begin with. It doesn't seem like they're in a particularly good position now. And Joe, maybe that's where we should talk about the players versus Bob Bradley. Yeah. If you had to order them, which one seems more frustrated with Bob Bradley? It seems like Bernardeschi based on some of the comments, but then also Insigne noted twice in the article as saying that he does not want to play for Bob Bradley anymore. I think he has denied that or sort of downplayed that a little bit, but both of them seem pretty unhappy with the manager. Yeah, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's possible to rank them. I, if I had to, I might go Bernardeschi 1, Insigne 2 in terms of their irritation levels with Bob Bradley just because some of the Bernadeschi stuff has been more recent, like in the game where Bernadeschi kind of hit out at Bradley, not using his name, Insigne wasn't even there, right? He wasn't involved in that game, and now Insigne has been back in the team, and and Bernadeschi hasn't. So He may have been there. He's just very short, so the camera might have just, like, cut him out. Who knows? Right, just, I mean, we sort of couldn't see him over the blades of grass, I think, is is (laughs) the challenge. I mean, you've got Insigne speaking to the media for the first time after the win over DC United for the first time this season and saying, I've always been happy with the club. This is through an interpreter, but I've always been happy with the club. I'm happy with the coach as well. There's never been arguments with the coach. My family is very happy here. To me, that feels like a bunch of baloney, right? That feels Mm -hmm. like him sort of just covering his tracks. And and I think that's probably the smartest PR thing you can say. I mean, what are you going to say? Like, oh yeah, I hate this guy. Like, I don't want to come and work for him anymore. You can't say that stuff, right? And Insigne knows that. He's, He's savvy enough to understand that. So I don't put any stock at all in that quote. I think there are very real underlying issues here. The big question for Toronto is, 
can everybody start rowing in the same direction? And that win over DC was a was a good win. Like Insigne getting some assists, him, him seem, seeming excited and energized, and, and that's huge, right? And, and there's a, a positive quote about Bernadeschi from Insigne. And, and again, even if these are the things you have to say, there's still the things that you, you want to hear your star player say, and you want to have your star players start to come together and actually work together as you know, a, a pair in the attack and actually have the team move together in the same direction. I think there is a lot of, again, there's a lot of egos in this team, and mm-hmm. it does not seem like maybe any of the egos outside of Bill Manning and Bob Bradley get along here. Like, there's there's not been a lot of, of, of like, teamwork really going on, yeah. as you soccer as that sounds. That's, that's been a really big problem, and if that problem can get resolved, I think Toronto have a much brighter future than what we've seen through 15 games so far this season, mostly because it would be hard not, not to have that, but... If it doesn't, and it is still a very big if, it's not going to be a pretty rest of the season, and it's not going to be a pretty future for Toronto because their squad is is kind of a mess right now. That it is. Uh, We're going to talk some more about the other players involved, where they go from here, how they could potentially resolve this in just a second. First, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back, Joe. Uh, I want to talk about a few more people involved in this saga, such as it is, uh, because we should mention Michael Bradley and Mark Anthony Kay to some extent. Uh, I thought that was also interesting, although not really that surprising that basically Michael Bradley, uh, seen as uh, more of an assistant coach than a teammate, other players feel like they can't talk about uh, Bob Bradley openly or be critical of anything Bob Bradley does without it eventually getting back to Bob Bradley. Um, I don't think that that's that big of a surprise when you have a father and son uh, working together, a son playing for the father and having done so at national team level. And previously, it feels to me like a thing that you are going to have to expect to be the case. But at the same time, I totally understand how if that's your captain and locker room leader, 
the idea that you're frustrated with the coach and then two days later the coach comes up to you and is like, hey, I heard you were frustrated with me. I can yeah. see how that would make you feel very quickly like you can't really talk about things openly and honestly you can't work through things in the locker room. Yeah, I think this is one thing that wasn't surprising to read from the article but was was still helpful to understand nonetheless that there is this real concern about folks not being able to really express some of these issues around Michael Bradley because of his relationship with Bob. I think that's been true in the past. I don't think that's a new thing for this particular Toronto year. But yeah. it, the thing about this is it's another match, right? That's that's what Toronto yeah. FCR right now is there just a bunch of matches everywhere. And, and all it's taken is just this little spark of, you know, Bernadeschi being irritated about tactics and that bleeding out into a discussion. And then him and, and Bob Bradley talking about it in the locker room and Michael Bradley jumping in and then Bernadeschi telling Michael, like, be quiet. You're, you're his son and Bob's your papa or whatever. Then Michael, yeah. then, um, excuse me, Mark Anthony K coming in and, and Bernadeschi being like, you're his other son. He's your papa too. And it's like, this is hilarious <laughs> notes, by the way. Sorry, sorry, Joe. No, I go. do love the idea that no matter who spoke, Bernadeschi just kept being like, well, you're his son too. Like, no matter who, <laughs> the, the kit man walks in. You're, you're his kit son. It's fine. Bob is everyone's papa but mine. Yeah, exactly. I can't stand it. I mean, exactly. like, it's, it's just another match. Like, Michael's relationship yep. with Bob, Bob's relationship with, with some of these Italian players, the Italians' relationship with each other, and Bill Manning's presence in all of this. Like, there's not a, a clear, as far as I can tell as an outsider, there's not a clear structure. There is not a clear hierarchy. Certain people are trying to, to step above where they should be in the hierarchy. The squad is unbalanced. The stars aren't performing. Like, there's all of these challenges that could derail, like even just one, maybe one or two could derail Toronto season. And and it seems like from the piece and from what we've watched and from what you and I have read from players and coaches and, and executives talking about this, it feels like maybe all of those matches have been lit at exactly the same time. Yeah. And there's still time to, to put out the fire, but like there are so many potential pitfalls here in, in Toronto are just kind of stumbling into all of them through 15 games this year. And one one more match, uh, one more of those matches seems to be the approach to training. Uh, Dro, uh, Joe, sorry, Drill, I'm not sure how that just happened. Uh, Joe, for you, when you hear about Bob Bradley training, like what have you heard about his methods? Because I think I assumed reading this article that it was, oh, he's just like overly focused on figuring out a way to stop conceding and be defensive, and then he's letting the the big name players do what they want, and that's not working for them. Uh, I talked to a few people. It sounds like that is not the case. If anything, he is more sort of uh, backing the entire team to work together to figure it out and kind of trying to make training reflect that. Yeah. So from what I've heard, and, and there are other folks, again, that have that have more information on this than I do. I've never been present for a Bob Bradley training session or any of that stuff. But from my understanding, Bob Bradley approaches things in a in a fairly rare way as a manager in that he does a lot of scrimmaging. Like he does a lot of, of just playing. And usually you see... Some small sided games, you might get like a, I don't know, six v. I'm not, I'm not a coach, but like a six v four plus two, mm-hmm. and so you get like, you know, two players that are always on the on the side of the ball, and and they're sort of rotating through, and different players coming in. A more small sided stuff, a lot of, of small rondos. With the idea of training, you know, getting out of tight spots, keeping the tempo up, working on pressure defensively, working on transitioning from defense to attack, all of that stuff. It, it, you know, you see a lot of that from coaches around the world. It seems like Bob Bradley likes to do a lot of. 9v9 seems like he likes to do a lot of 11v11 and and just much larger sided games which you do see some like you know in the last 15 minutes or so of training you get either a walkthrough for patterns and a lot of managers will will go 11v11 and the other team will set up and how the uh how the opponent for the weekend will play in their defensive shape you do get some of that but it seems like from what i have heard and understand bob bradley likes to do a lot more of that throughout training sessions which I think can lead to players maybe feeling like, okay, we're not working on a lot of patterns. We're not really working on transition specifically. We're not really working on build out specifically. We're working on everything at the exact same time, which means, you know, kind of, you can think about it like we're working on nothing, right? Because we're not focusing on anything. We're not you know, mentally trying to get better at any one specific thing. I think it's hard at times for players to grasp all of that information and, and do everything at the same time. So I don't know how detrimental that's actually been to Toronto. It seems like it worked just fine for Bob Bradley at LAFC. Their players were very good. They had balance in the squad. They had a lot of success. They won a supporter shield. They were the best team in Major League Soccer. Now in Toronto, it's it's not working so well, and I can kind of understand why. If if what I've heard is true, players are, are kind of irritated about some of this stuff mm-hmm. because it's not very specific, but I don't know. I, I don't think it's the major problem for Toronto right now, though. Taylor, do you? No, I don't. I, I think it is uh, sort of what you alluded to previously, which is just a team that has everything negative kind of hitting it once and then compounding upon itself and, and getting further inflamed. 
it feels to me like a team that as soon as they string together three wins, it will be fine. Uh, and, and that kind of confidence will come back. I think if you are suspicious of the training methods or you have questions about the training methods and things aren't working, those suspicions or questions become outright frustration and criticism. If you are sort of not convinced by training, but you're winning and things are going okay, I think you're going to go along with it a little bit more. And I think also the feedback and the conversation is going to be inherently more positive because if you're winning but you think it could be better you're going to approach it like that if you're losing and you think it could be better you're going to approach it as this doesn't make sense it has to change it's not good enough and then things get inflamed so for me it's it's it seems as simple as Toronto just putting together like three games in a row and then the vibes turning but that may also well be just a massively oversimplified understanding of things because there's still the rumors that Bernardeschi will be gone this summer. There's rumors that Insigne maybe as well. Yeah. Uh, it does not seem like they're going to move on from Bob Bradley, though that has also been speculated. So it may require some big changes and some big fixes. It may just require staying the course and getting some results as other teams get tired. Yeah, Taylor, I love your point there about having a few games actually go well and having mm-hmm. your team play well in a few games and that kind of fixing some of this stuff, especially on the training side. Players stop nitpicking and stop looking at that stuff, and, and you know everybody's a little bit happier. I think the tactical side is important, and, and how you train and how you prepare your team is important. How important it is, I'm not totally sure, because we can't really measure it. The thing about all of this that I feel the most confident in, especially as it relates to Toronto's future, is if Insigne and Bernadeschi start trying, Toronto will be a much better team than they've been. Right, You've got these players that very clearly don't love each other. What the relationship is at this point is a little hard to say, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of love there. If these players can get on the same page and start rowing in the right direction, they will score. They will do incredible things in the attack. They will do mesmerizing things on the field for Toronto. And yeah, the rest of the core is, is solid. The depth might not be there. But like, if those two players are doing something for you in the attack at a level they just haven't done so far this season you're going to be a threat. Like in every single game, you're going to be a threat. And that just has not been true for Toronto this season. So Bob Bradley can go in and and change his tactics and maybe he should. Bill Manning can go in and and stop meddling and putting his fingers in so many pots and and it seems like definitely he should. Insigne and and Bernadeschi might not like Michael Bradley. They might not like Bob Bradley. But if they're like, all right, enough of this. Let's go out and dominate because that's what we do and that's what we've done for large stretches of our careers. That is going to be the single biggest thing that helps Toronto get back on track. All right. Well, we will monitor the situation with Toronto. I'm sure many other people will as well. Uh, Joe, let's let's be more positive for a moment. Uh, looking at this past weekend or uh, more recent MLS results, who are you finding yourself gravitating towards? If you're just watching as a neutral, who do you who do you have some positive things to to say? So this weekend was kind of an Eastern Conferency weekend for me, and I don't I don't know exactly why that was. It's just kind of how my viewing turned out. The team that I want to start with, and and Taylor, I'm eager to hear some of your thoughts on this as well, is with FC Cincinnati, who Mm. are on top of the Eastern Conference. They're leading the Supporter Shield race. They go to Colorado over the weekend, so I guess there's a Western Conference tie. They don't play incredible soccer, but they get a 1-0 win. Don Badgie scores in the 33rd minute. That's 1-0. They clean up three points on the road. They hadn't had a ton of success on the road so far this season. It was big. That's four wins in a row for Cincinnati. They've only lost once all season. They're They're getting points. And I'm still not convinced, Taylor, that this team is playing so, so well. I don't know. I think there is room for them to improve. And maybe a bigger part of that than I expected is Brenner. It's the fact that he's no longer with the club. I believe he's in Italy now, had a little bit of an injury, was going to stay for a little longer in Cincinnati and play a couple more games that didn't end up happening. So he's gone now. He's no longer a, a, a contributor for FC Cincinnati. And so it's Brendan Vasquez, who's been forced to carry a lot more of the attacking load with Lucho Acosta still doing Lucho Acosta's stuff, Lucho Acosta mm. stuff, excuse me, underneath. But Vasquez only has three goals in 1,200 minutes this year. He scored 18 goals last year. You know, that's a big difference. His, his scoring rate has dropped a ton this year, and yet Cincinnati still pick up result after result after result. I think they're going to get a bump after the summer when they maybe sign another striker. Maybe they have a little bit more talent come into the team. But man, they've managed the beginning of the season about as well as you possibly can, even as the squad, I think, is still getting up to top speed. It's really fascinating uh, because I think you, you hit the nail on the head with Brandon Vasquez and the continuing to get the hype, I think, justifiably, but at the same time, not continuing to get the goals. And even like Don Badgie comes in, gets the goal this weekend, as you said, but I think that's his third or fourth of the season. Like it's not, it doesn't feel like they have uh, really 
hit their full form yet, nor should they have, because it's obviously still very early days. But I think I'm of uh, of the same mind that you are, that a few more acquisitions, a few more additions uh, in the summer window, and I feel like this is a team that will continue to be uh, very much on top, which yeah. is not a thing I, I have always expected, certainly not uh, when they were winning wooden spoon after wooden spoon. Uh, but the way Lucho Acosta has been stringing things together and running the midfield and making attack happen, like... I don't know. It makes me sad as a DC United fan, but happy for FC Cincinnati. Uh, Joe, are there any other areas you think they should maybe be looking to reinforce uh, when they have the opportunity to do so? Yeah, I, I think they could use another another wing back. I know they, they went out and sent a couple in the offseason. They haven't had a ton of production coming from those players, and Arias and, and Foster is much more of a depth piece than anything else coming in from USL. But I, I think they could use something there if, if only because their second best creator actually no scratch that their best creator this season as good as Lucho Acosta has been has been Avro Barreal who plays left wing back has spent time playing as an attacking midfielder before he's just like a really hard running aggressive quick combination kind of player like he's not always going to thread through balls in but he's got a great left foot he's somebody that I think could provide depth inside at times maybe if they need it as the season goes on and so they could use a bit more depth somewhere on the on the wings I think they could use a winger if they want to change shape a little bit it's been a lot of two strikers with the 10 behind them and wingbacks under Pat Noonan. I think they could vary that way. But really, the, the place where I think they're going to go, and this has been reported, Tom, Tom reported something about this last week as well, I believe, is they're looking at a striker because they want to replace Brenner. And I, I think that is probably the right thing to do. I think, you know, I wrote a little bit about for backfield that a winger might be the right thing to do for them. But I like the idea of, I like the idea of them signing a striker if only because of Brendan Vasquez's production. Like, again, I mentioned it, but it's gone down so hard. I think maybe I underestimated, and I did bring this up on the show last year, but I think maybe I and others underestimated how important the pieces around Brendan Vasquez were for his success. Again, scoring 18 goals, he had Acosta underneath, and still does, but he had Brenner next to him, in shape, playing, in form, drawing defenders away, and you have that 3-4-1-2 shape, and all the pieces are, are sort of working together. You take one of those things out, you take Brenner out of the equation and Brendan Vasquez is struggling. I think maybe he needs another high quality striker next to him. That Toronto, I mean, excuse me, Cincinnati have capable players in that spot in Sergio Santos and, and in, uh, in, in Don Baggi, but nobody that's going to fully light somebody on fire. So I think I would probably start at the top and maybe try to reinforce around the edges as, as the window goes. But that number nine is probably where I'm looking first. One team that has been uh, setting people on fire, to continue that metaphor, uh, would be the Philadelphia Union. They've won three of their last four. They've scored uh, in those three games that they won eight goals over three games. That's not too shabby. This weekend, a 3-1 to win over NYCFC. Joe, let's, let's heap some praise on Philly, shall we? I love it, man. I, I think Philly sometimes fly under the radar because they're not the most attractive team. They don't have any real... Stars in this league, Andre Blake's probably the closest thing that they have to that, and it, yep. it's just hard when your best player is a goalkeeper. That's kind of how this works. That is, man. That it is, is. It's tough. Surprising. That yeah. is. No, I mean, you're totally right. It's just it, it is also an odd one that yeah, Andre Blake is the like the marquee, the player that I would first think of if you asked me to name a Philly player, which isn't yep. always the case when it comes to goalkeepers. Yeah, and, and and they got overshadowed a bit even with Blake making some good saves against LAFC when they lose in the CCL. Semifinals and now LAFC are going to get to play Lyon and, and that starts up this week. Like there's there are issues that Philly face in terms of being a narrative team, but man, they've been good. Like they they do deserve some credit. They've looked like they're pretty much back after CCL took something out of them. They had some other early season blips as well. Andre Blake dealt with a little bit of an injury and that that hurts you when you lose your best player for any stretch of time. Now they've been winning games without Alejandro Bedoya as well. He's been out the last two games and should be back soon. But, like, Blake's been out for a bit. Bedoya's been out for a bit. They've been missing the U20, so we're off of the U20 World Cup. That's Jack McGlynn. Most importantly, Quinn Sullivan has it's played some spot minutes as well. But McGlynn is the big one there. And I think Jim Curtin has done a really good job of navigating some of these waters with different players being out and injured and, and being in so many different competitions at the same time. He hasn't just stuck with a 4-4-2 diamond and said, yep, we're going to smack four midfielders on the field every single game, even when we're missing in Bedoya and McGlynn. Two players that have become starters for this team. Bedoya's always been, but McGlynn has become and, and won a starting job earlier this year over Leon Flack. Instead, they've switched to a 3-5-2. We've seen even a bit of, of a Christmas tree in a 4-2-3-1 with two kind of attacking midfielders underneath uh, a number nine. And so that doesn't put quite as much strain on, on even the fullbacks to get so far forward and, and different things like that. The 3-5-2, though, is the look that they've gone with, I think, the most as that secondary approach. And it's worked well. Like, they're still lightning quick on the counter. 
Daniel Gazdag still crashes the box. They just locked up Jose Martinez, I believe, to a long-term deal. Mm-hmm. The pieces are really good in Philly. I, they have their weaknesses, don't get me wrong. Like I don't think they're the best team in MLS at getting back into games against a compact block because they like to play in transition so much. But this team's really good. They're playing like a trophy contender, and I think that's exactly what they are at this point. On the flip side, Joe, uh, how are you feeling about NYCFC, who obviously lost this weekend to the Union 3-1? to Not not great. Not as good as I thought I would. When we did our MLS season preview, I was kind of on the, all right, this team's going to get the pieces they need, they're going to figure it out, and they're going to be you know top four team in the East or whatever it is. They've not been that so far this season. They're down in 11th right now. Granted, there is very little room between, let's say, 11th and, I don't know, 7th. There's four points between those teams. Like, yep. Things are still very compact. We're still relatively early in the season, although I think you want to see teams start to hit their stride now, if they haven't already. But I think a big problem for this team has been nobody has performed up to Maxi Morales' level. And, and Maxi goes back to South America. Is no longer this team's star number 10. You're not seeing anybody really replace him. He was this team's leader in expected assists last year on a per-90-minute basis. He was leading them in progressive passes. Now this season, nobody in the front six is is stringing together nearly that many progressive passes. I don't think anybody's within four per game of where he was last year. Like, they're just not moving the ball forward as effectively because they're they're missing their best and most skillful attacking midfielder. I thought Santi Rodriguez, who came back in after the season started, would be enough to compensate for that. And, and maybe he will be after they get a number nine into the fold. Again, no Tati Castellanos, no Aber. Tati's over in La Liga. Aber's playing for Seattle. That move is still weird to this day, the fact that they let him go to, to Seattle like that. But they don't have an elite number nine. So it's been a lot of Regila Desma and Santi Rodriguez as these yeah. kind of two central attacking players. And at times things just get gummed up. There's nobody making a run in behind. There's nobody pinning the center backs. And so maybe it's the fact that Santi Rodriguez and, and Ledesma and Talos Magno aren't good enough on the ball to replace Maxi Morales. Or maybe it's the fact that they've lost the structure that made Maxi Morales so good last year. Maybe it's even a little bit of both, but really this team needs to find ways to, to pass the ball forward more effectively. I know that sounds really basic, but like for a team at NYCFC that's as reliant on possession and control, they, that's what they need. Like they need to be accessing the final third more and more. I think they're, they're 20 times fewer per game this year than they were last year. They need their tens to start playing like some version of Maxi Morales, and they need a nine to really add the structure that they've been missing so far this season. I think it's fixable. I think all this stuff's fixable. I think they're still going to be you know, a, a top half team in the East, probably even higher than that. But there are some problems here for NYCFC right now. Uh, there are indeed. Less so for Nashville, who are having themselves a, a pretty strong start to the season. Uh, Joe, I watched their game uh, versus Columbus. I have a very strange thing to praise up oh, front. Yes. Oh, I yes. want to praise uh, the Nashville supporters for a moment, because watching this, Columbus uh, score the opener and run to celebrate in the corner right in front of a bunch of Nashville fans. And I think because it's not a whole stand there, it's the seats where, like, I can't tell if those are club employees or club personnel or if it's just people who spend a lot of money. But there's a number, there's probably 20 people sitting right there as all the Columbus fans are celebrating. And the Nashville fans just sit there completely neutral, just not even angry, not streaming abuse, just sitting there like, okay, guys, get out of my face and stop celebrating. And... I don't know if it's it's in the wake of like fan unrest unrest incidents around the world, but seeing supporters just sit there and be like, "We'll get ours," and not throw stuff at them, not scream abuse. It was just like, "All right, Nashville, stay in classy," and then winning uh, by scoring three more goals uh, yeah. to pull it back is 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 better revenge than hurling a beer at somebody. I have to say, I love that, and the atmosphere was really good. Like I like that you pointed that yep. out, Taylor. It it was the last game of the weekend in Nashville, Nashville, Columbus. Two teams that play at times fun soccer and like have real identities and, and lots of good stuff there. And Jodas Park and, and the national fans basically always do a good job. So that was a, a good environment and a good advertisement for MLS. Frankly, Nashville are cooking right now and they're second in the East behind Cincinnati. They've won five of their last six games. They have the best expected goal differential in the East, which means, okay, they're creating more chances than the other teams creating chances. And they're, they're doing a better job of defending and denying their op- opponents chances than their opponents. Like they've done a really good job on both ends. And I really enjoyed watching them against Columbus. That was a fun game, Taylor. I'm glad that you caught some of it. They've been missing Walker Zimmerman for the better part of the last month. Like the outside Hani Mukhtar, like the big name player for Nashville. And they haven't really missed him, even though he's been out with an injury. He played four minutes off the bench against Columbus. And it seems like he's coming back. 
like he hasn't really been missed that much. It's Gary Smith throwing out the four four two, like still using that, but also tossing in the four four two diamond, and and that's given them a little bit of a wrinkle. Hani Mukhtar is now playing as a number ten instead of always as a, a second forward who's crashing the box. That's getting him more involved in the game. I looked it up; he, he has four more touches per ninety minutes this year than he did last year, which is not a huge boost, but I think does say something about his role changing a little bit. This Nashville team is very, very good. They know exactly how they want to play. And, and the scariest part, maybe about all this, is with Akeloba no longer on the books. He's no longer a designated player. They terminated his contract by mutual agreement. How mutual that was, who knows? But like they found something that worked for both parties. They should be going out to sign a designated player this summer. I'll be very, very surprised if that doesn't happen. We haven't seen Nashville actually hit on many DPs outside of Hani Mukhtar, maybe zero DPs outside of Mukhtar. If they can hit on this one, and to be honest, even if they don't, like they're still playing at a high level, but if they hit on this one, they just become so much more frightening for teams than they already are. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I'm a big fan of the Sunday night game. I'm sad that we don't get more of those. I'm sad that we don't get any of those for a good long while because uh, I'm not really ready for soccer to be over on, on Sunday night. And uh, usually that's when I do a lot of my catch up for the weekend review. And, and there are times that I'm just like, I, but I want a game to be on. I don't want to I don't I don't want to be done watching soccer. So th- that is why I was like, oh, good. There's a game on. I'm going to watch that one now. And I did. And it was very great. So uh, more Sunday night games Please, uh, on the note of me uh, begging people who almost certainly aren't listening for more content, uh, we're going to take a break and come back to answer three (laughs) listener questions back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and they, all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. I said they were lister questions. I lied. They're Discord questions. All the same. They're pretty great. The first one, Joe, comes from Coop. How, if at all, does St. Louis' style of play influence the self-inflicted errors other teams uh, commit while playing against them? So the back passes, the own goals, and the like. I believe Coop is a a St. Louis, a ravioli boy, if you will. So, uh, Joe, uh, prepare your answer accordingly. (laughs) Toasted ravioli boys for life. Um, So I think it has something to do with it, Coop. I wrote about that a bit earlier this season when we were really in the heart of what is happening. Have St. Louis broken MLS? Because why are all of these teams passing the ball right to Jao Klaus? I wrote about this a bit back then, and I don't think my opinions really changed all that much. So I would imagine the reason why this question popped back up for this episode is because Vancouver made a couple of disastrous errors against St. Louis over the weekend. Taylor, I don't know if you saw these. I have the not. first is an Edward Loven. Free kick. Lovin has been fantastic this year. He should be an all-star. He's really, really good. He's taken a free kick from like the left half space, maybe pretty far back, and he just bends it in, and it's it right over Thomas Asal, who like totally biffs his approach angle. Just generally is, is a huge it. it's a huge goalkeeper error in that moment. A well-placed ball. Like I, I, I like the effort from Edward Lovin, but like what even is going on there from Vancouver's number two goalkeeper? It's a huge problem. That's the first one. The second one. Fits maybe a little bit more in line with the question from Coop. It's it's uh, it's St. Louis passing the ball forward. I think it's Lovin again. He just plays the ball forward. It's a hopeful pass. Maybe St. Louis are trying to win the second ball or whatever. There's nobody like really that threatening in the moment for St. Louis. 
But Tristan Blackman, who's playing as the left-sided center back in this game, just tries to head it back to his goalkeeper. But Hassal thinks that he's coming off his line to claim this ball. And all of a sudden, Tristan Blackman heads the ball right over Hassal and into the back of the net. Like, it, it was a pretty unforced error in that moment. So my theory for St. Louis, now with that context kind of laying the foundation, is that, yes, their high-octane approach looks awful to play against. And I have no doubt that they are miserable to play against for 90 minutes. They are more dialed in. They look like they're they're applying more effort and energy to the game than basically anyone in MLS. They press more outside of their defensive third than any team in MLS, including the Red Bulls. I think that can be true, the fact that they look awful to play against. And it can also be true that they're getting really lucky bounces. Like The latest blunders don't even come from that kind of pressure. Like it, It's a dead ball situation, and it's, it's a, a miscommunication from center back and goalkeeper. And now you can say maybe like men- mentally they're being worn down and so they're more likely to make those mistakes. I think there could be something to that, but not at this rate, right? Like not at the rate of Charlotte hitting the ball into the back of their own net and then Portland, ah, maybe Portland didn't do it. Maybe it was Austin. Like there's so many of these teams that, that have done mm-hmm. this over and over again. I just have a really hard time imagining that this is going to happen at this rate for this long. Taylor, am I am I way off on that? What do you think? I don't I don't think so. It 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 has felt to me or it felt to me at least early on like a team that is sort of I think I made this analogy before, but it's a team that's like approaching what for some teams is preseason as like this is the road to the playoffs and so I think St. Louis City, I mean, lest we forget have been preparing for the season to begin by having players playing for their 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 second team for over a year. Like I think it's they have hit the ground running and are basically in mid-season form at the beginning of the season whereas I think other teams are figuring out their chemistry, figuring out their their new wrinkles or if they've got a new coach in place, how to play under his style and and it just seems like they're not making as many of those errors, they are instead being very aggressive in their press. They also, I think, worth noting when you're a pressing team, you oftentimes don't want as much of the ball. So I think they're not then committing their own disastrous mistakes. But looking at that Vancouver game, I think they have uh, the stat would be 38% possession there. So St. Louis kind of, I think, going the route of, you guys can have the ball, we're going to press you. And eventually, if you have the ball 60% of the time, you're more likely to make the mistake on the ball especially if you're figuring things out and not really in that sort of rich vein of form. So I think it's a you-make-your-own-luck sort of situation for St. Louis City. It's something Toronto maybe needs to learn from. Yeah, it it is a lot of making your own luck. And and St. Louis do put themselves in a position to capitalize on more of these mistakes. Like the way that they play will inherently cause more errors than the way that basically every other team in MLS plays. Pressing does that, right? But this, this trend that maybe popped up a bit against Vancouver... I think it's already settled down pretty aggressively. Like we saw it a lot over the first five games. Mm-hmm. It's been 10 games since then, essentially. We haven't seen nearly as much of it. I think it will continue to settle down as time goes on. It's, it's not something that St. Louis will be able to rely on all the time. That said, they should still take pride in how they play. They should take pride in the fact that they have an identity. They should take pride in the fact that they are this good at forcing mistakes. And that you know, teams will fold under pressure. That teams will have some of these issues. They just shouldn't rely on this being something that gives them a goal every single game. It's not going to be sustainable. We, this doesn't happen anywhere in the world, and, and St. Louis aren't going to be the ones to crack this code. One other note on St. Louis, I know this isn't what Coop asked, but it does make me a little sad. St. Louis have been really good this year, obviously. I'm not breaking new ground on that. Like They've been so a that, top three that team. That makes you sad? Joe Lowry <laughs> said that St. Louis have been good. Got it. They've been, a, they've been a top three team. I'm just going to move right past that. I'm not even going to let the mentions get soggy with that kind of thing. Like They've been good top three team in the West this whole time. Luch Van and Steele, who's, who's kind of running the sporting show for St. Louis, came out and said on Twitter that they're not going to go after a third DP in the summer. And maybe that changes, but that bums me out. Like, St. Louis have two DPs in Jao Klaus and Edward Lovin. Neither one's a particularly high-profile player. Not that that has shown to matter for St. Louis. But, I mean, I feel like they are one piece away. Or, really, I, I honestly feel like they're a few more pieces away than that from being a real contender. But I think they're one piece away from being you know, a a real attacking threat and not just a real pressing threat. Maybe they go out there and try to sign a winger who can be really aggressive and dangerous and be a DP. They don't really have that right now. I'm bummed out that it doesn't sound like they're going to be ambitious enough to take that swing. Maybe something changes, but I wanted to shoehorn that in here because I don't really understand why they're not going for that. And I don't know, just kind of makes me sad. You can't tell Lutz what to do. That that feels like a, I wouldn't a part dare, of it at least. It's like, I oh, would conventional, not dare. Wisdom. <laughs> yeah. conventional wisdom says we need three. Well, then we'll have two, and we'll be fine all the same. I don't yeah. even need it. I'm going to go comment on some Bundesliga games now. I'm assuming yep. that was Lutz's approach. Uh, so. We already talked about Nashville, but we're going to go back to them for our next question from Jameson. 
Nashville are actually scoring this season. Uh, they're still heavily reliant on Mukhtar, but it does seem like others are contributing with more goals. Has there been a tactical change, or is it more about getting the right personnel this season? Joe, I did a little bit of number crunching. Uh-huh. Uh, they had 52 goals for, 41 against last season in the regular season. Uh, through 15 games, they've got 22 goals, 10 against. Uh, if you extrapolate that out, that puts them on track to get about 50 goals, which is about what they got last season. The goals against number is is significantly better, which is definitely worth praising. Uh, but I think when I initially read this question, I assumed Jameson was just saying, like, they're scoring a bunch more. How are they doing it? And I think to look at the question again, it seems more about, like, are they spreading out those goals a bit more? Does it seem more multifaceted, that Nashville mm. attack in your mind? Yeah, it does. And, and I crunch the numbers on that. I think that's helpful context, Taylor, about the defense being better and the attack being about the same. That checks out with what I've watched. I didn't look at the numbers on that side. But I did look at Mukhtar's share of the goals relative to the rest of the team. So last year, he gave them 44% of their goals, which was, wow. I believe, the highest chunk of any team in Major League Soccer. Scored? Yeah, goal scored. Yes, okay. thank you. He had 23 goals out of a 52 total. There was no other player with more than 10% on Nashville's team in terms of their total goal-scoring contributions. So he was the guy so clearly, so obviously for Nashville last year, the first name on every uh, the opponent scouting sheet. Like, he was the man. And he still is the man this year. Let's not get it twisted. And I don't think Jamison's trying to say that he's not. Mukhtar this year has nine goals. Nashville scored 22. He has 41% then of their goal. So last year, 44. This year, 41%. The next highest player is Fafa Pico with four goals out of 22. That's 18%. And then Jacob Schaffelberg with three goals. That's 14%. Again, last year, there was no player above 10. So the premise of Jamison's question, I think, is spot on. You know, it's, it's still too small of a sample size for me to feel great about Fafa Pico going out and scoring 10 goals this year. I don't think that's probably going to happen. But it does feel like there are more players. And, and so far, it has been more players that have scored a higher percentage of goals than there was back in 2022. They're getting better production out of the surrounding pieces while still getting elite production from Hani Mukhtar. The question is why? Like, why is that happening? Okay, if it's happening, and we can agree that it's happening, why is that happening? I would be, first off, I'd be curious to hear Gary Smith talk about this because I don't think there is like this very clear, obvious answer. And I think he would provide some really informative context here. But my thought, and this is just from what I've seen, my thought is that with Hani Mukhtar a bit deeper at times, we talked about that 442 diamond earlier, there is the tactical change, most obviously. With Mukhtar playing as a 10, getting a few more touches per 90 minutes, Nashville are are shifting to try to get other numbers streaming forward into the box to account for the fact that Mukhtar can drop and pick up the ball off the six. He can drop and pick up the ball off the left back or whatever it is. Last year, maybe he did a a bit less of that and was receiving higher up the field, and he could be that extra number in the box. And he still is. But like last year, I think the way that Mukhtar scored most of his goals was a number nine in CJ Sapong would make the, the hard run in the box and Mukhtar would fill in. He would be like the accent runner to be the, the finishing touch on top of the dish. And he'd get the ball as the trailing guy, and, and, and he would have space in the box to take a shot and, and score. This year, he's still doing that stuff, but because he's no longer just the second forward, and we're seeing a lot more of Teal Bunbury and Fafa Pico as two forwards with Mukhtar underneath, there are extra numbers higher up the field. You've got Alex Mule, you've got Schaffelberg, whoever, sprinting up to be even another number in the box. I, I would imagine that Nashville are getting more players higher up the field, which is then leading to better chances for those players, which is then leading towards players like Fafa Pico and, and Jacob Schaffelberg scoring more goals. Whether that stands or not through 34 games, we don't know yet, but I think that's got to be part of this early season trend. Uh, Joe, it's been a very uh, Eastern Conference episode thus far. We've had a few forays into the West, but it's been pretty positive on the East. Let's end with a negative Western note, shall we? Uh, yes. Because Stu asks, where does Joe think the Timbers most need to strengthen in the summer? And is it time to think about a new manager? Uh, Timbers have five points from their last six games, which is not terrible, but also not ideal either. No, it, it's not. Like, I, I think Portland could pretty much strengthen anywhere outside of maybe right back and a Vander spot and maybe goalkeeper. I think most other spots on the field they could do with an upgrade. The challenge for Portland this year has been injuries. Like, they've dealt with so many injuries. We talked about Eric Williamson, I think, last week or the week before. He's out for the season. David Ayala is out for the season as well. Those are two of their top four central midfielders. And in Eric Williamson, they're maybe most important midfielder, or at least him and Diego Chara were, were penciled in to be the two starters this season. Injuries have hurt there. They've lost players in other parts of the field as well. Jimmy Chara has been out for, for chunks of the season on the wing. Sebastian Blanco is not fit and hasn't played 90 minutes so far this season. 
I think overall, Portland have the talent to cause problems in the West this year, even if they're only ninth right now. But they just don't have the, the top-end talent or the quality depth for me to feel really good about projecting them as a, as a top-half playoff team. So maybe a signing, to get to Stu's question, maybe a signing in the summer can help that. You know, they should be making moves in the summer. I think they've got the, the flexibility to do some of that. I would probably start with a winger. And I don't know if they're going to do this. I don't know if they can do this. But I've never been convinced fully by Jimmy Chara as a DP in MLS. He's been here since 2020. He's never scored more than six goals in a single season. He's never been at a rate above, what's let's see, 0.29 goals per 90 minutes in MLS, which is not remarkable. Like, he, he's not... He's not an effective designated player. He's just not. And, and he's been around for a long time. And he should not be your team's primary attacking outlet on the wing. Santiago Moreno, who I think has, has pretty much become that player, scored seven goals last year in, in 2,400 minutes, which is a good but not great rate for a young player. 23 years old, should be in his prime right now. Taylor, he has zero goals so far this season. His scoring rate has, has dropped a ton. His expected goals have been almost cut in half. He doesn't look goal dangerous. Like, it's just not there on the wings for, for Portland right now. And when you think about their style under Gio Savarese, who I'll get to in just a second, you think about their style, they don't care about having the ball for long stretches. They don't, they don't really want to outpossess you. They want to be practical. They want to be pragmatic. They want to sit in a 4-4-2 mid-block. They want to win the ball. And then what do they want to do? Well, they want to have their star players, their most skilled individual attackers, they want to have those players go at you 1v1. They want to have a Vander skate by you in central midfield. They want to have Jimmy Chara drop a shoulder and push past you. They want to have Santi Moreno dribble by you and then beat a center back and, and cut in and shoot and score. Like, that's what they want. The problem is I'm not too sure that Jimmy Chara and Santi Moreno are good enough to do that. I think Evander probably is, but those two players on the wings, I just don't think really make Portland's ceiling very high. So if I'm looking for somebody in the offseason, I'm starting out wide or I'm doing my absolute best to get Moreno up to speed to be a top winger in MLS... I'm just not sure that's possible at this point. So that's where I'd start. As far as Severese goes, just quickly, he's been around for, this is the sixth season now. So 2018, I think, was his first year in Portland. Went to two MLS Cups. He's only finished in the top four in the regular season twice, which, I mean, that's not, it's not awful in a league that's built for parity, but it's not great either. I've just really, honestly, never been all that impressed with him as a manager. So if this season is another bad year where they, they didn't have a successful season last year, if this year's another year where you're, like, towards the bottom half of the West... I'm probably going to try to take this as a, a chance to move on and reset a little bit. Whether Portland will do that or not, I don't know. I think he's pretty well liked there inside the organization and, and by at least chunks of the fan base. I'm just, I think, colder on this Timbers team and have been than most folks around MLS. That, that's, that was going to be my question, Joe, uh, of sorts. Like with the, the front office, with the way things have gone in the, in the offseason and with the ownership and with a lot of the scandals and allegations – it seems like enthusiasm for Portland is at at or near an all time low. A buddy of mine who's a Portland fan sent the the list of like the top twenty five uh, uh, jersey sales, like player jersey sales, and that Portland didn't have a single player in there. I believe is telling because I think they're usually pretty good about buying uh, jerseys of their favorite players. So if things aren't all all happy in Portland. Who are the players, or like, is Savarese popular enough, Joe, in your mind that like getting rid of him would be a bad thing, even if the team isn't playing well because he is so well liked? I'm assuming that's how it would work with the Char brothers. If you get rid of Yimmy, even if he's not playing well, if yeah. you were to trade him on to try to get a new DP, I wonder how that will be perceived by the fan base. I do wonder if they have to do those calculations because things are, at least on surface level, very negative uh, in Portland or have been negative. I think that that is a real calculation that has to be done. I don't know how popular Savarese is in particular. Mm-hmm. I I think he's liked, but I don't know that he's loved. I think, yeah. honestly, Stu would be better equipped to answer that than I am as a, as a Timbers fan. Fair. But, like, I, I don't, as an outsider, see a ton of issues with getting rid of him and moving on to the next cycle. He's been there for a long time. I think Portland have kind of hit their ceiling. Now they're back pretty squarely below that ceiling. There's There's room for them to evolve and to improve. I think they need to make some pretty significant changes in this summer window. Hopefully it's not just one signing. Like hopefully they're making multiple signings to recover from the injuries. But even if you put Eric Williamson back in this team, even if you put a healthy Jimmy Chara back in this team, even if you make Sebastian Blanco healthy, but still, you know, 30, whatever that he is now, does anybody really think this is a a contender in the West? Like, does anybody really think this is a, at least in the regular season for, for any sort of regular season plaudits for the supporter shield or whatever, Maybe they go out and do something in the playoffs, and maybe that's good enough. But for me, 
and I don't have an MLS team, if I had an MLS team, a favorite one, I would want them to be consistently excellent for 34 games, to threaten the playoffs, to try to compete in every competition. And I think Portland are a number of different signings away, unfortunately, from making that into a reality. Commiserations, Portland fans. Congratulations to Sporting Kansas City fans for that 4-1 win over the Timbers. So there's a positive. Uh, And a positive is getting to talk to Joe Lowry about Major League Soccer. Because, Joe, you always bring the knowledge, bring the expertise, uh, and bring the answers so that I don't have to go in-depth on questions that I am out of my depth on. Uh, So, Joe, thank you very much. Anything else that you want to talk about before you get back to your uh, temporary Minnesota lifestyle? Um, just a note, not an MLS thing. I like the accent there, Taylor. I want you to understand that I, I acknowledge that. I hear it and I like it. Uh, Anthony Hudson's no longer the USMNT manager. That just happened while we were recording. I guess he's found another gig. I haven't been able to scroll Twitter thoroughly, but what? it is not a new manager that's been hired. It is BJ Callahan, who's been an assistant for, I think, a while with the US. Not somebody, I'll be honest, that I know a ton about, but has been around American soccer for a while. He is now... I think the new interim interim manager and Hudson is, is going out. I imagine to find another gig. He's probably found one and things are just weird with the U.S. men's national team right now. We'll see what happens. Wow. <laughs> I had not seen that story. My immediate thought, like this is completely unfounded, completely uh, like speculation. My immediate thought is that he's been told he's not in consideration for the full-time gig. Like, just out, like outright told, no, we're looking elsewhere. And if you're him, if that's the case, I mean, I guess you could make the argument, Nations League, Gold Cup, you're going to get some more exposure. But if you're not a consideration, why does it matter? And if the players know you're not a consideration, why does it matter? So maybe that's why he's moved on. Maybe it is to, to get a, uh, a more permanent gig or he's already taken one. But that, that's my assumption right away. But man, Joe, you're not wrong. Strange times for the U.S. Very strange times. Just hire a coach. You know, we're almost we're a week away from the end of the European season being done in, in basically all of the top five leagues. Just make it happen. Find somebody. Get them in soon. I don't understand why things are taking so long. Make the move, folks. Make the move. So Joe wants any manager in place. Joe, unfortunately for you, that means Frank Lampard has been hired for the USMNT. Ooh, I'm going to head out um, and never <laughs> talk about soccer again. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Uh, uh, not necessarily for making Frank Lampard the national team manager, <laughs> but for all of your, your work today and for bringing that to my attention. Anthony Hudson, we will miss you. I am confused. I, I'm like more curious about this than it should be about where Anthony Hudson is going. I'm like yep. really invested in this now. Yep. Taylor, this was fun, and I am confident that we'll talk more USMNT at some point later this week at this point. I am as well, my friend. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again, maybe with some more Anthony Hudson news tomorrow. Tomorrow.